This week, my guest on the show is Thomas Lantala. Thomas is from Austria, but has been living in Norway for a number of years. Thomas's work is described by him as the intersection of human dynamics, innovation, and disruptive change. And Thomas has an interesting background. He's worked for the Norwegian Red Cross in disaster management, for Oxfam in conflict transformation, and also in the Southeast Asia Africa region in terms of program coordination. And these days, he's doing lots of work with organizations in terms of facilitation, helping people and organizations through training, speaking, ideation, sparring, and so on. So in this week's episode, we're going to talk about a number of things. First of all, his background. How did he come to be someone who is helping others through his training what is facilitation to him, and also the kinds of programs that he runs for his clients, including disruption management, next-level facilitation, decision navigation, and then some of the groundwork he's done in terms of building board game and decks of cards, which he uses with his programs. And I find that really, really interesting. I've not had too many people on the show who have developed some kind of game or some kind of, uh, some kind of workshop tool which they then build or have someone produce for them physically, which can be used. So loads to unpack in this week's episode. This is the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the Training Business Podcast. This is the weekly show for people like you and me, consultants, trainers, coaches. And the focus this week and every week is on the business of making money from your programs, your workshops, courses, books, taking what you know, what you've done, what you've learned, and transforming it into something which you can earn from. I'm a self-employed trainer. I'm a coach. I'm a published author. And I love sharing episodes like this to help you on your journey wherever you are. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, You're speaking to us today from Norway, right? That's right. Okay. So let's begin at the beginning because I'm always intrigued by how people are where they are today and where they've come from. So today you describe yourself as a master facilitator and process consultant. Let's go back a bit and and to the point you want to go from and explain to us how you got to where you are today and the kind of work you're doing right now for people. Uh, Good. Well, where to start? I am... You said I, I call in from Norway today. That's that's mm. right, but I'm not Norwegian originally, so I'm from Austria. Uh, I ended up here 12 years ago now, a um, little bit by coincidence, because I my career started in what's broadly labeled the humanitarian field. So I come originally from the field of peace and conflict work and um, started as a volunteer in South Africa for a while, and that's already when I knew I wanted to leave Austria and I wanted to work internationally, and then it was a short way into... Uh, the international humanitarian aid. So I worked in Afghanistan first, was my first first job there. I first worked with conflict, later on with crisis. And crisis management became the red thread for the first 12, 12 years of my career, pretty much. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful job, took me to places where not many people go. Um, so it was a lot of privilege there, a lot of learning, steep learning curves. Uh, it was quite intense. And eventually I... I hit the wall. So I led crisis teams into these extreme zones, but I never took breaks. 
So my mental health was on uh, a bit rattled at the stage, and that's when I became self-employed. I, uh, I took a break. It's not easy easy to shift, so I underestimated that that was better for my mental health. Uh, it wasn't really. So I became my own my own boss for the for seven years, uh, working with a lot of the the learning, a lot of the the insights from both leadership crisis and working with teams and and leaders into a consultancy business, um, mainly as a consultant for group processes, as a consultant for for businesses that needed that went through change, uh, that went even through crisis, and that wanted to build skills. And that's what I've done for the past now. I think it's now 11 years, something like that. So now I'm mainly facilitating. I'm also in a role where I often train facilitators and I consult businesses on on different processes on how what is actually the right process to go for transformation, how to work with disruption, and how to work with change. So lots to unpack there. And what made you decide, I want to go into not just working for myself, but helping other people work for themselves, helping people to facilitate better and to um, understand speaking, training, and so on. I love, I love people. So first of all, I liked, I liked the, ch- the challenge of being able to develop my own ideas. Uh, this was uh, without having to ask for permission, uh, work the, the organizational boundaries and organizational hierarchies. Uh, mm. That was the first kind of motivation to really get the space and see, try out, I have a couple of ideas. Let's, let's see how this works. Um, and it was always about people. So even, even in my last years in crisis management, I, I was already mentoring and I was already developing leadership development programs for crisis leaders. So I kind of already moved a little bit into that role, which is more like training, facilitation, teaching, which I always liked because it's, it's not about, I'm not a person that teaches what's the right or a wrong way. I'm more like creating spaces where people can learn. So it's, I, I share my top up, um, at the end of it or throughout if they want, but it's, it's not about like, this is what you should do. It's more about this is another idea for the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has always been my approach. And I think this is both heavily influenced from the places that I've worked in. I have also had the privilege to work with indigenous peoples over the years, which have a very different mindset to, to what we face. And, uh, and this, I think, transcends into my work. So I, yeah, this is kind of the philosophy I like to apply. I want to challenge you in something, and and I mean this from from a good place. You say you work at the intersection of human dynamics, innovation, and disruptive change, with over a decade of hands-on experience leading through highly disruptive contexts. If someone's looking at that, is it clear to them, you know, what you do for organizations and what you specifically sell them? I don't know. When I get the question, I can I can usually explain it, but that's always the big that's the big thing when you when you mm-hmm. sell yourself. So I'm a I'm a practitioner, not a, a salesperson in that sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that could be formulated in many, many smarter ways. What I do is I think I demystify change. Change is a very, very heavy word. And technically we're always in change. Change is also not the problem. The problem is the disruption that it causes. If we're not ready for it, if there's a resistance, if it catch, catches us by surprise then it can quickly evolve into a crisis. But for me, that's why I've also relabeled myself from crisis management to, to disruption management because the crisis is the context. And managing that, yeah, might get you somewhere, but very often it's a context that we have no influence over. What we have influence over is how we deal with the disruption that it causes for us. And that's and that's where human dynamics come in. So I've always, in my book, I've written about a human-centric approach because this is kind of where we also feel the crisis the most. It starts and ends with us. So that's 
it's about human dynamics. It's about understanding the emotional responses. It's about understanding what potential we actually have. And this is another thing that I've learned in those contexts. I've seen people that work and live in, in with disruption and with crisis for, for decades. And they still, they have a, a normal life, even though we, we struggle sometimes to picture that they have a normal life and they can, and, and this is because of their, in retrospect, resilience. I don't like to call it resilience because for me, resilience is always something that's labeled in retrospect. We don't know before if you're resilient because we don't know the change that we're facing. So, so these are the things that, that I'm working with. And I try, and this is kind of the third element to it. And I try to do this for innovation, for basically make, helping companies and helping teams to dare to do something different. There's no better time to innovate than when you're faced with disruption. Because you can resort to where you've been before, but chances that you will end up in the same situation or that you come out rather even are very high versus if you turn it around and say like, this is a chance, the rules fall away. Let's try something new. That usually is uh, is quite a booster. When you package what you do into products and services, you've got, um, looking at your website, uh, signature workshops, disruption management, strategies for navigating uncertainty, next level facilitation, secrets to engaging processes, decision navigator, strategic innovation tool, and finally, Lord McGroundworks Team Castle, which I have to ask you about. How did you <laughs> come up with those workshops and say, this is what people want from me, this is what they're willing to pay for? This is what, what was asked. So a lot of it is is a result of my book, uh, the book that came out last year, which is in many ways a reflection of my my crisis management practice and my approach to it. Because I, when I started consulting, I, I always claim I do things differently. But as it is with tested knowledge, you, you certainly know this yourself. You, it's sometimes hard to pin, pin down what it is that I do differently. So I went through this nightmare of a process in, of writing this book because it's not easy. Uh, I know now that the writer's journey is a thing and it's not an easy one. Um, but it, it, it is great. Looking back at it, it was, it was so important because it gave me a lot of clarity how I, how I approach this topic. Um, and one of the, one of the things that came out is, is a couple of my own, uh, approaches and my own tools, which I kind of put into this, into this workshop. But it's also combined with experience. It's combined with your exper experiential learning in the sense of that people will go through these disruptive settings and then transfer it into their own settings to just really say, like, so what can we do? For example, I have a, a model that's called habitual readiness, which is, which is in a way of playing into the whole idea of resilience, but only I don't, I, I'm playing to being ready for change, not to be resilient for it. Cause we, as I just said before, we can judge that in retrospect, but we're ready for, we're going to be disrupted. Something's going to change and how are we going to deal with it? And, and one way of doing that is to develop habits that help you in these situations, simple habits, like exchange your perspectives constantly. And if you make it a habit, you don't think about it anymore, but it's highly relevant when you're in a crisis situation or the magic moment. So basically when you have, uh, uh, when you have something that changes, stop for a second and just really, you know, take a step back and look at it. I'm sorry for the, the background. Nobody's harmed, but my, my children just came home. It's okay. <laughs> um, so, um, so those are, those are habits that, that help you. Um, and that I try to package in a workshop that can be used completely as a, as a whole package or just the individual elements. Facilitation is really looking at how I use some of those elements like disruption, et cetera, in facilitation. Cause I also think they're actually really nice catalysts for creativity. They're nice catalysts for social dynamics, like psychological safety, because this is how I learned it. And that's very counterintuitive thinking like, Oh, you disrupt. 
And then you talk about psychological safety. Yes, because I've learned in context where disruption is a given. And I know that teams can, through disruption, actually develop a lot, a high level of psychological safety. So this is when, when it comes to next level facilitation, right? Um, and, uh, yeah. And then we have the decision navigator, which is a tool. It's kind of a, uh, board game slash tool, which is a strategic process that I developed based on. Uh, also the book, it's kind of a, a process that builds on your resources uh, and helps you to innovate and make confident decisions. And the, the team castle was a, was an idea that I had many years ago when I really got into play for training and play for playful methods. Um, I had this idea to develop a board game and that's what we did in the end. And it's a board game for, for team development, focusing on five core competencies for teams, which are not the normal ones like communication, et cetera, but then a layer below, so sharing vulnerability, establishing purpose, building safety, stimulate creativity. Uh, and we put, we turned this into a facilitated board game. So I want to talk to you about that because that's really, really interesting. There are not too many trainers I've interviewed who've said, we've developed a physical thing um, with a designer or with some kind of uh, instructional designer that... Uh, manifests in the form of a board game or an app or a deck of cards or that kind of thing. So what process did you go through to move from conception into reality where your idea for a board game was developed with someone and it became a physical thing? I'm curious how that actually now is a physical thing that people can get their hands on. Yeah. This was a, it was one of these maybe happy accidents, uh, if you want to call it. Um, I really got into this idea of play. So I started to, I primarily use LinkedIn as a platform and I, I connected with people who worked in the sphere of, of game based learning and serious play. And I had a few calls with, uh, with a contact in Canada who is very active in this and they had developed their own board game. And I was, I was just simply throwing this out. I said, like, we have this model for team development and, I really play with this idea to make a board game out of it. And we also were scheduled to go to Canada at one uh, point, a couple of months later um, for, for a conference, me and my partner. And she sent me an email the next day and said, like, you have, uh, I've arranged a play test for you with a high level PR team in, in Toronto on that and that day. And they want to test your game. And I had nothing at that stage. So I'm like, okay, came on, uh, in that sense. So I went to the drawing board and I, I, I had really first I came up with an idea and I had a bit of sparring with her uh on 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 the game mechanics but not too many um so I really mapped this out myself um trying to really uh develop a something that works and then we went there with papers like literally large cartons where we had drawn up the the boards we bought we bought at IKEA uh little figures that, that represented the the pins that they could move with and had a couple of challenges and this is how we did it in a basement in, in Toronto with this team, people that we'd never seen before. Uh, and they gave us incredibly valuable feedback in terms of like, this works, this doesn't work. This is for what, what I felt too long. We didn't play the whole game. We just teased it, of course. Um, and this was, uh, this was the next step. And then we worked with a designer, which is also part of the, the Canadian team there. And she helped me kind of design this in the sense of giving it a form. So it's now a castle before it was just. A random shape now it's actually a castle in the shot scottish highland and it became this whole brand around it so this lord mcground work is an expert on team development but nobody knows who he actually is and and he kind of sends all these these challenges to people and you have to basically work yourself through this castle to unleash your team spirit 
And it became this whole idea with, you know, then with her, I worked a lot on the game mechanics. So in terms of like, should we add coins? Should we not add coins? What can they decide themselves and so on? Um, and then we got, got the whole thing and tested it again. And yeah, it's, it, it works really well. I was surprised myself and it's for both. It's actually has revealed a lot of additional purposes. So it's also for, for leadership development. It's also for, for decision making, um, in teams, highly effective and, it also is a reflection tool and what we, why we do it facilitated is because we, we, we want to help them to transfer the insights. That's often the back big gap for us who work in this industry. How can we help the group or the participants to transfer the insights and experiences into their everyday work and not make this an isolated event or an isolated situation where they have a great feeling and that feeling goes away at the moment and fades the moment they go back into the office. So this way, this is why it's, why it's facilitated and why it's also it, it's uh, it's followed by a reflection part of it and we also developed a couple of card games so i got in get, really got into this and uh the decision navigator is also a play-based tool yeah do you think that physical objects like games and decks of cards add to the training environment in ways that a powerpoint presentation or something visual wouldn't or doesn't yeah absolutely I, I do think so. Also, because we're overusing PowerPoint. I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing that there's fantastic PowerPoint presentations out there, but I think it's overused. So people, when they see a PowerPoint, something goes off in their head uh, and they say like PowerPoint. So that might already, you know, create a blocker. Um, that said, PowerPoint, for example, is very useful in some settings. Games are useful in other settings because you have the exact same challenge with games. If people see games, they're like, oh my God, a game I don't want to play. What happens with games, however, is that at one point or the other, people people give in to the context, especially if you create it in a way that they see there is a connection to my work or there is a relevance for it, but it's also not my work. So they, they, they are in this artificial world, in this artificial context where they can play out their dynamics, they can become maybe someone, someone they're not at work. Um, we become all children. I can tell you there's one thing that I have experienced every single time when we play, people want to cheat. Not everybody, but they're trying to cheat. They, really? This is, this is the nature. And it's a bit like my, my kids are nine and five and they, they do the same thing. They, they, and, and in a way, cheating is also a creative problem solving because they're finding the, the shortest way. Um, so it's, it's very interesting, uh, but we all turn into our kids again. And some had good experiences with games, and some didn't. And all of it plays in because the human dynamics play out in an alternative universe. And when you work like with team development, when you work on team dynamics directly, it's a lot easier if you take it out of the working context and and explore them in in a context that is playful, that isn't real. You know, you can, you can still challenge them and you can see how did it feel and discuss emotions and then go back to. So what can we take away back into our, into our work? This proved to be really effective when you work play, at least the way I work with it, when you use that as a method. As you're saying that, I was thinking about how I've in the past used games like, um, the prisoner's dilemma or mm -hmm. blues and reds, which is a mm -hmm. well-known tool used in, uh, negotiation training mm -hmm. and, um, it's it's you're right when when people find themselves in a situation where emotions are involved it's funny how the rules go out the window mm. and even though the role or objective of the game is to get people to collaborate cooperate they still get some joy or pleasure from screwing over the other team or doing something which 
means that even if I don't win, at least you're not going to win either. Mm-hmm. And there's this competition which people love and enjoy. I'm always intrigued as to when is uh, play too much play in a training mm-hmm. environment or a facilitation workshop? I think play is too much play if that's the only thing you use. Uh, even if you, for example, have different learning arenas, as I like to call them, and you use every single time play, it's 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 too much because it becomes almost a one-trick pony in a sense. Um, the other thing is play for me is very little worth if you're not adding reflections or any sort of, of debrief mm-hmm. or discussion to it. So basically make it like a, an artificial context, but then take them out of this context again and that in a guided way. If you don't do that, and I've, I've seen that several times not being done, then you you miss actually the bridge back to, okay, now we're back in the real context and people don't come out of their roles. You you certainly have seen or experienced this after role plays when somebody says, you know, shake it off. In the beginning, I was laughing, why should I shake it off? But I've really learned, particularly coming from conflict work where role plays a lot is, is uh, often part of the trainings and the, the experiences, you need to shake it off because they become the characters and we overplay their roles. And they sit with the same emotions if you're not getting out of the role again. And physically doing that, for example, helps. So play is effective, but play must not be overused. So for me, it's it's like any other tool. You have to have an intention with it. So I wouldn't play just for fun. That's great. But I think in, in business contexts, that might that might actually backfire because eventually people will say like, well, when are we getting back to business? And I've heard that many times. And when I can show we're actually doing business and I can make that link through reflections, et cetera, it's usually more effective. If I miss that link, if I don't do it, then it's a bit tricky. Before I um, sign off with you, Thomas, I want to ask you about your book. You've mentioned your book a couple of times, so I'm going to give the title to people listening, um, Navigating Beyond Crisis, uh, The Crisis Compass. And I think you've got down a current book as well, Navigating Group Dynamics, 99 Unconventional Hacks to Level Up Your Facilitation. And that's something coming out this year in 2023. Um, so if we take the first thing first, the book you have published, what has that done for your brand and for your business? I've decided to self-publish. So I went a bit the unconventional way. Um, so it definitely has elevated my my personal brand. Uh, it also is something people are curious about. Um, it's of course, in, in a way, it's a specific topic. Uh, so going back, I would probably relabel it now. Um, because also reading it again with some distance myself and getting the feedback that I got from people, it's less about crisis, but more about almost like a human human centric leadership in transformation, if you want, or extreme transformation. But since I come and I share a lot of experiences for my humanitarian work in there, it stayed in that context in a way. So it, it has definitely helped. Um, also, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I, it gave me more clarity on what I can offer and why my approach maybe is not textbook approach. Uh, what I actually emphasize. It gave me the chance to develop some of my models or ideas into models, which I also meanwhile teach and which are also been taught by others now who have read the book. So it's about spreading the word. It's about also, you know, you can can really make contact through the book and, and I that helped. So you mentioned briefly people, other people teaching this. Does this mean you've licensed it as a model or a series of pieces of IP which um, provide you with an income stream? Uh, no, I haven't done that. Uh, it's more that I have seen it being taught in or referenced in courses, uh, but I have not. I have not licensed it as an income stream. No. Sounds like you're okay with that. 
I've honestly not even thought that, thought on that line. I'm a I'm I'm a very <laughs> I'm a very big sharer. Uh, right. Not the business, not the business mind, the main main business mind on the planet. But I'm I'm grateful for any of those hints to rethink my approach. Thomas, where can people find out more about you? I'm primarily on LinkedIn, uh, where I really share almost daily. Try to stick to it. Both facilitation hacks, as you managed before, but also really different, uh, sometimes philosophical, provocative questions uh, and engage. But I have also a website, uh, which is www.lantala, which is very difficult to describe how to write it uh, with two H, but you'll find it eventually dot com. <laughs> and um, and I have some writings around uh, Medium and, and in different journals, so podcasts as well. And I'll provide, of course, the links to that in the show notes. Appreciate so that's that. www.lahnthalerlantala.com. Uh, for people listening, we'll provide links to everything in this week's episode with Thomas. Thomas, thank you so much for being my guest today on the show. Thank you very much, Mark. This, this was great. That's it for this week's episode of the show. My thanks to Thomas Lantala. I will, of course, provide links to Thomas's LinkedIn profile as well as his website. If you have a question or suggestion, please email me. That's mark at trainingbusiness.com. My team, as always, Sam, Joe, James, Turo, and I are really appreciative for your loyalty, your listenership, and your time today. Please click on follow or subscribe to be notified of great episodes. Until then, look after yourself. See you next week. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. See you next time.